Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Quite the day in Boston on Thursday as you had the Celtics in action, the Bruins in action, and the Red Sox on Opening day, and we'll get into opening day in just a little bit here. I was very excited for the Red Sox. They end up losing this game. I thought it was entertaining, but I'll give you my full thoughts on opening day in just a little bit. And I really thought they were going to win that game. It was 10 to 9 in the ninth inning. They had an opportunity. They didn't come through. And now we get ready for sale day coming up in just a few days. But also the Bruins, they finally end up getting the President's Cup trophy. We knew it was inevitable, but that's wrapped up. So we'll get into them. They beat a lowly Columbus team on Thursday. And then you had the Celtics where, I don't know about you, but you've heard me. I was starting to get a little bit concerned about the Celtics team. They completely laid an egg against the Washington Wizards, a team that has nothing to play for whatsoever at this particular point in time. And those awful pink uniforms, they lose that game. They've had so many losses this season that make you scratch your head. And then they show up to Milwaukee against Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Milwaukee Bucks, the best team in the NBA right now, and they absolutely throttle the Bucks 140 to 99. Okay, so I'm going to give you in just a couple of minutes here my five reasons I feel good about a Celtics Bucks matchup in the NBA playoffs. But before that, I'm just starting to think, like, if you think about these Celtics losses, the bad ones, right? It's the OKCs of the world. Now, OKC's playing better and all that. That's an improving team, but it's a young team. It's the Houstons of the world. It's these games that you just don't expect the Celtics to lose, and they just completely no-show. And then when they play the two teams in the East that you think you're going to have to go through to win an NBA championship, Philadelphia and Milwaukee, they play really, really good basketball. So just to put that whole idea into context, it makes you feel good about the team, right? Like all these issues we have when they play the really good teams, they show up and they win these games. So I'm starting to buy back into the fact that, hey, when everything's on the line, when the playoffs start, that this Celtics team is going to be ready. And maybe it is. And now the other night, I still can't 
understand how you don't show up for that Washington game when you have the one seed that is on the line. But I do really, truly wonder that post-All-Star break, if this was sort of the dog days of the NBA season, where the Celtics coming out of the gates, they were so fired up because they were pissed off about how things transpired, how they lost in the NBA Finals, and they had to hear that narrative all offseason. So they came out of the gates firing. And I think for Tatum, it was the criticism he was getting after he was horrible in the finals. And for Jalen Brown, what we found out in recent weeks that he was upset about the Durant trade rumors, I think it was that. I think Jalen was trying to prove to the organization, I should be the guy here, not the guy that you're trying to trade for. I should be that guy. And for Tatum, it was about proving to the NBA world that he was one of the best five players in the sport and that he should be an all-NBA performer. So I think all these guys had certain things that they needed to prove. And then eventually you get post-All-Star break, Tatum won the All-Star game MVP, and Tatum's feeling good about himself. And then the rest of the team is sort of following the leader in terms of it's the dog days of the season. So maybe that's part of the problem. I hope that's the problem because I had real concerns. But then you see them beat Giannis's team by 41 points. Like Giannis... Whoever wins the MVP, whether it be Jokic, whether it be Embiid, I think most people truly believe that Giannis still wears the crown right now as the best player in the league. And the Celtics now continue to beat good teams. You look at it on the season and cleaning the glass tracks all this. The Celtics now have 16 wins against teams in the top 10 in terms of point differential. That's the most in the NBA. So they have the most wins over good teams in the league this season. Their point differential, plus 4.6, okay? And that's even going to go up after tonight's game, of course. But that's per 100 possessions, plus 4.6. They have a 119.1 offensive rating against teams in the top 10 in point differential. Philly's second at 117.0. And then you start to think about what they've done against the Milwaukee Bucks in particular. So the Celtics coming into tonight, the previous two games against Milwaukee, and remember, one of them, they weren't playing anybody. You had no Horford, you had no Robert Williams, and most importantly, you didn't have Jalen Brown and you didn't have Jason Tatum. You just sort of punted on that game and the Celtics ended up losing and they almost won. In those two games, the first two, the Christmas Day game and the game where nobody played in, the Celtics had a 121.7 offensive rating in both those games. And if you look at the Kings this season, they lead the NBA at 118.8. So basically, the Celtics are playing better than the best offense in the NBA when they go up against the Bucs, who just so happen to have the number two defense in the NBA, which is pretty remarkable to think about, right? And you think about it tonight, another great offensive performance where the offensive rating is through the roof, that number is only going to go up. And if you look at it in terms of how they shoot against this Bucs team, it really feels like they've cracked the code whenever they play the Bucs. They're making these shots, and the Bucs are going to give you, and I'll get into this, a lot of open shots. The Celtics are hitting them. So if you look at the Celtics from the floor against the Bucs this season, they are now 147 of 275, so 52.7%. Denver leads the NBA at 50.9%. So they're shooting better from the floor than the best team in the NBA from a field goal percentage standpoint. How about threes? 58 of 132, 43.9% in their three matchups against Milwaukee this season. Denver leads the league at 38.9%. So you're shooting better than the best three-point shooting team in the league from a percentage standpoint. It's just remarkable to think about. And the two games that you actually played Tatum and Brown, and I get that Middleton was dealing with his injury on Christmas, and Middleton went out of this game after he caught the Jalen elbow, but the Celtics have now outscored the Bucks in those two games, Christmas and tonight, 
by 62 points. So what the Celtics have done is they've cracked the defense on this team that is the second best defense in the NBA. So that's the first part is they seem to have Milwaukee figured out. I'll give you more reasons on that in a second. But I do think part of it, too, is just bringing the necessary effort when you play this team. Because clearly the Celtics, they've had a bunch of no-shows this season, not against Milwaukee, okay? And maybe that's the reason Milwaukee has the number one seed right now and not the Celtics, because Giannis doesn't really have an off button. He is going to go balls to the wall every game, and the Celtics don't really have that on button all the time. And the reason Milwaukee is in the one seed, that's probably it, is that Giannis cannot shut it off. And we've seen it with the Celtics. They shut it off all the time. And if Giannis isn't shutting it off, the rest of the team can't shut it off, right? So the other team that you're competing with in the Eastern Conference, the Philadelphia 76ers, the Celtics are 3-0 against Philly. They have a 120.8 offensive rating against Philadelphia. Again, the Kings lead the league at just over 118. So the two best teams in the Eastern Conference besides the Celtics, they play better than the best offense in the league against those teams, okay? They hold Philly, by the way, to a 113.7 offensive rating, and they're third in the NBA at 117. So the Celtics are much better, or the Philadelphia 76ers are much worse offensively against the Celtics than they ordinarily are, which you would kind of expect, but you wouldn't expect the opposite to be true also, right? Where these are two good teams and the Celtics offense has been so much better. So my theory on the Philly matchup is I'm not worried about it because Philly... I don't believe they have enough guys that can stop the penetration of the Celtics. So if you look at the Celtics, their numbers against these teams are ridiculous. Brown and Tatum reach a 21.7 a game, and they're shooting 48.1%. And that's even with the game that Tatum did not shoot the ball particularly well after the All-Star break and hit that game winner. Brogdon is shooting 55.2% from the floor against Philadelphia, and White is shooting 64%. As a team, they're shooting 52.9% and 44.3%. So again, just like we talk about with Milwaukee, they're shooting better than the best team in the league when they play the Philadelphia 76ers. And if you look at it, what's happening is they are getting wide open threes against the Bucks or against Philly, rather, about 18 per game, and they hit 53.7% of them. No team this season is shooting better than that on the season in terms of wide open threes. Obviously, that's a ridiculous number. So my theory on this is, The Celtics get lasered in for certain opponents. Now, I don't think they should be treating teams this way. Like, it's not like they're, for example, Golden State who had just won a championship or say the Golden State Warriors after they won their first year with Kevin Durant and sometimes they took teams lightly. Like, the Celtics should still be hungry. And we saw that hunger at the beginning of the season. We don't see it on a nightly basis. But when they play Philly and when they play Milwaukee, they certainly bring it. So I think that is a good sign where... Now you're back into thinking, and maybe some of you never aborted the mission or never gave up on the hope. I never thought that the Celtics couldn't win. I've always said a healthy Rob, they have an opportunity, they have a chance. But I think tonight you can't underplay what this meant. It sort of reassured me that, oh yeah, when the Celtics want to play and when they're healthy, when they have all their guys going, including Robert Williams, this team can beat anybody in the NBA, and they can win in a seven-game series against anybody in the NBA, and that's in, that includes Giannis, that includes Embiid, all these guys. The Celtics are deep enough, and they're talented enough to do that, and I do think that they needed to reassure us of this, and they certainly did, because can you imagine if they lost tonight? We'd be having real concerns about this team, but I think this is a statement by the Celtics, and I give them a lot of credit for coming out after playing so poorly in Washington to beating the shit out of that Milwaukee team. I give them a ton of credit for that. Okay. So let me get to the advantages I believe the Celtics have against the Bucs. Number one, 
Giannis is not the freak against the Celtics. He's just not. This is the reality over the last five games that the Celtics have played Giannis Antetokounmpo. So if you go to tonight, 11 of 27 from the field, that's 40.7%. He has 24 points. Christmas, 9 of 22, 40.9%, 27 uh, in that game. The OT game, remember, where nobody played for the Celtics, 12 of 26, 46.2%, 36 points. Now, he had a lot of points, gets to the free throw line and all that different type of stuff. But this season, he has not had a 50% game against the Celtics in terms of field goal percentage. Okay. In the series last year, he shot 45.7% in that series in totality. Last two games in terms of that series, 10 of 26, 38.5%, 25 points. 14 of 30, 46.7%, 44 points in that game. He got his points, but he did it on 46.7%. So if you look at Giannis on the season, this year he's shooting 55.3% from the field. His last five games against the Celtics, he's shooting 42.7% from the field. This is a guy, going back to those games in the playoffs, the two in the playoffs and the three this year, he's shooting 42.7%. And yes, he's averaging 31.2 points per game, but he's doing it on 26.2 shots. So just think about that. This is a guy that shoots north of 55% from the floor in the season against the Celtics in the last five games. He's self of 43%. So I have a fear of Giannis just because this guy is the ultimate competitor, but I've now watched it for five games where this guy has legitimately struggled to score against the Celtics. Yes, he's going to end up getting his points because he's going to take a lot of shots. He's going to get to the free throw line. But he has struggled to get those easy line drives to the basket. Remember we talked about the other night, like the Celtics giving up all these easy drives to Washington. They shut that shit off against Giannis. He is not getting easy opportunities to get to the basket. They load up on him. I give Joe Mazzulla credit tonight. I believe he kind of threw the bucks off at the beginning of the game, which I can't believe I'm saying based on the way that he coached on Tuesday night against Washington. Putting smart on Giannis was kind of smart. Like it felt like Giannis was sort of overthinking things early in this game. And I did like putting the size Jalen Brown on Drew Holiday to begin this game as well. So that's one thing in terms of advantages the Celtics have over the Bucs. Now, Giannis will be considered the best player in the series, but he's not the freak against the Celtics. He just hasn't been. I mean, these numbers don't lie. And you watch these games, Giannis isn't that dominant player against the Celtics. Okay, number two on my list of in terms of advantages the Celtics have over the Bucs. Tatum owns them. This is just reality as well. I mean, you think about it. The last seven quarters that Jason Tatum has played in Milwaukee, Giannis's house, right? He's had 86 points in seven quarters. He's had 86 points. He had 40 points tonight and he didn't play in the fourth quarter. He was 12 of 18 from the floor. He was eight of 10 on threes. He was a plus 36. Okay. You start to look at it now. These past couple of games, you go back to Christmas, 14 of 22, three of seven from deep 41 points. He had 23 points in the closeout game. He had a bunch of assists and rebounds as well. 7 of 14, 5 of 9. The only reason he had 23, he only took 14 shots, and Grant was hitting a million threes because it left him open. Like, Tatum was making the right play. Game 6, where I have said this on multiple occasions, the most important game of Tatum's career thus far. Like, you had to win that Game 6 in Milwaukee to force the Game 7. It would have been a real indictment on Tatum if he lost in six games to the Bucs without Middleton, right? Well, Tatum in that game, 46 points, 17 of 32, 7 of 15. So if you look at it, his last four games against Milwaukee, because he didn't play in the OT game, of course, 37.5 points per game. He is doing it on 58.1% shooting and 45.1% from deep. Tatum is getting 37.5 points per game 
on 21.5 shots his last four games against the Bucs, Giannis is getting 31.2 on 26.2 shots. So Tatum has been in these last four matchups because you take out the OT game, Tatum has been the better player with Giannis on the court. This has been happening over the last four games now. Tatum has sort of figured out this defense, and I do think that this Celtics team, they are insulted by the implication or the idea that, hey, they would have lost that series if the Bucs had Chris Middleton. And if they're pissed off by that, I'm happy because obviously they're motivated when they play this team. But we've seen Tatum, he really gets up for these matchups against Giannis. You go back to the dunk that he had on Christmas Day, and then you look at this game tonight. I mean, he was just on it. Hard drive right, spin back left on Holiday, hits a runner to make it 15-15. Hard drive left past Middleton, 31-24. Pull up three on Carter, 34-26. Sidestep three on Giannis. Okay, back-to-back possessions on Giannis here. Sidestep three hits one to make it 39-28. Then he gets Giannis with an in-and-out dribble where Giannis gets shook. He gets the space for the three, makes it 42-30. He drew a foul on Holiday, got to the line for two to make it 44-30. He dropped a three on Lopez where he literally dropped Lopez. Lopez was bent over after the crossover to make it 87-53. And I've said on multiple occasions, these are the times I want Tatum to take pull-up threes. When he has the big man switched on him. When he has the smaller defender, get to the bucket because you can overpower those guys. But he gets such separation on the big guys when he goes for a pull-up three. Those are the threes I like. Right after he dropped Lopez, he gets a corner three where he just runs to the corner, follows his pass, gets an easy opportunity there. Then he gets a pull-up on Ingles to make it 105-64. Right after that, he gets a catch-and-shoot three at the top of the key to make it 108-64. And then he just shook Ingles to end the night to make it 112-69. So Tatum has cracked the code in this defense. As much as we talked about the struggling in terms of the shooting so far this season for Tatum, he just... For whatever reason, this Bucks team, I think part of it is the matchups, right? Where I feel like if you're a great player like Tatum, even though your numbers are what they are in terms of your pull-up shooting, you've been one of the worst pull-up shooters in the game. In fact, most recently at last check, he's been the worst volume pull-up shooter in the league. When you get disrespected like that, right? When you're allowed to come off a screen and just get into a jumper in rhythm, that's like a disrespectful thing to a lot of players. And Tatum's going to make you pay. He certainly did against Milwaukee once again. So that's another reason where I think the Celtics have an advantage over the Bucs. Tatum has figured out this defense. The third reason that the Celtics have an advantage over the Bucs, they don't have a matchup for Jalen. And that was crystal clear in the first quarter of this game where he came out firing for 17 points. Because the reason I say that is, all right, if you're going to say, hey, Drew Holiday, you go cover Tatum or whoever it is, that means the weaker defender is on Jalen Brown. So think about who the Bucs have. Who in that starting lineup are you going to put on Jalen Brown? If you're putting Drew Holiday and if you're going to take him and put him on Tatum, well, who's on Jalen? Okay, well, then if you take Drew Holiday and you put him on Jalen, who's going to be covering Tatum? They don't have enough wing defenders. Like the Jay Crowder thing, that's not very impressive to me whatsoever. It feels like they are a wing defender short against the Celtics team. And the first quarter demonstrated that. Jalen went off and then Tatum went off. They both did it in the same quarter. And if you look at Jalen... In this game, 13 of 20, 65%. Three of five from deep. He goes for, what, 30 points, five assists, and the most important thing, just one turnover. And on Christmas, he's 12 of 25 for 29. So this goes back to my theory. Middleton's not a great defender at this particular point in time. It does, it's still, to me, he doesn't look right in terms of 
how he's moving around the court. I don't think he's the same guy that we saw pre-injury. Now, maybe he gets close to that as we approach the playoffs, but I don't see that same guy. I definitely don't see a good defender on that side of the floor. So I really look at it. I don't think they have a good matchup for Jalen Brown, depending on what you're going to do with Holiday. And we saw Tatum on Christmas. He kind of overpowered Holiday. So I don't think Holiday's a great, as great, and Holiday to me is the best guard defender in the NBA at this particular point in time. I just don't look at him as somebody that can cover Tatum now because Tatum has done a much better job this season against smaller defenders. Early on in his career, that used to bother him. Like Lowry used to piss him off because he'd get underneath his dribble. Holiday could do the same thing. That type of defender doesn't really bother Tatum anymore. And just like to, <laughs> to look at Jalen early in this game, right away, wing, catch and shoot, three makes it three nothing. Then Marcus Smart, great job by Jalen running the floor. Smart finds him on a hit-ahead pass, goes right to the lane, makes it 11-9. Then he's got Giannis on him. And again, I, this is what I like about Tatum and Jalen. They like to go at Giannis, which I can appreciate, right? You're going at one of the best players in the NBA, if not the best player in the NBA. Drive, spins, fall away, mid-range on Giannis, 17-17. Uh, Pull up three off a screen, 21-20. Wing three, 23-21. Runs the floor after a Brogdon steal, gets rewarded, makes it 24-21. Hard drive right. The defense collapses. Jalen finds Rob for an easy dunk, but that's all because of the penetration. Brooke Lopez comes off Rob. He throws the ball to Rob. Rob gets an easy dunk. After the Rob steal, he runs the floor, gets to the free throw line. He did miss the second, but at that particular point in time, made it 52-30. Then one of the other things that Jalen did a really good job at tonight was back cutting. He back cut Smart, found him for an easy dunk to make it 58-36. Then he got Brooke Lopez on him, just flew by him and scored to make it 89-57. Hit a mid-ranger over Grayson Allen. Then he back cut Grayson Allen, and then he had a hard drive right to the bucket, just like vintage Jalen where... It's those explosive drives. Okay, so that's another reason is right now, what we've seen in these recent games, the Bucks do not have an answer for Jalen Brown. Okay, number four, another advantage the Celtics have. Rob is kind of a new wrinkle in this matchup, if you think about it, right? We all talk about, or everybody talks about the Middleton thing last year from a Bucks perspective, but think about this from a Celtics perspective. He only played in three of the games against the Bucs last year in the postseason. Because we all remember, yeah, he came back at the end of the Nets series. But remember, Rob wasn't himself when he played against Milwaukee. And they kept saying when there was only a day in between, he wouldn't play that game. So if you really think about it, the Celtics played that Bucks team without Robert Williams last year. And if you look at it tonight, very active, 19 minutes, 7.7 rebounds. I love the block that he had on Giannis, and this is what they didn't have last year, right? Giannis is going to the basket hard. He's going through people. Rob catches him from behind and blocks it, and then because of that block, you get a Malcolm Brogdon layup on the other end. And then nice job just like when this Celtics team, when they can beat their original defender, Rob is sitting there right ready in the dunker spot, and he gets an easy feed for Brogdon for a dunk. And then later on, he gets his hands in the passing lane on Drew Holiday, taps it up, they go the other way. Jalen gets to the free throw line. So the impact that Rob makes, it's these plays, the steals on defense, the blocks on defense, what he can do in terms of a vertical spacer. And he's very good at moving around down low where it's like, oh, Brogdon's coming from this way. I'm going to go over that side of the basket. He's going to catch a lob, something along those lines. And the impact metrics have always been there with Rob. You look at it this season, the Celtics are outscoring teams by 9.4 points per 100 possessions with Rob on the floor. That's in the 96th percentile. That on-off difference is at 3.8, which is an elite number as well. And then you look at the defensive rating with Rob on the court. It's 108.7, which is in that, the 96th percentile. So 
Rob is not a good matchup for Giannis, but what he is a good matchup for is a help defender. And the Bucks have enough guys that can't shoot where you can find a matchup for Rob where he can play that rover free safety role. And the thing about Rob, this team is basically, over the past two years, outscoring teams by more than 10 points per 100 possessions when he's on the court because of the impact he makes. And one of the things that I, quite frankly, underrated about Rob in a potential Bucks series last year is just that outlet, right? Because what happens so often against this Bucks team is you get stuck and you got to take floaters and you got to take runners, shots along those lines. But now with Brooke Lopez, if he does get pulled out and he makes that more difficult, like if he challenges the floater, say it's Brogdon, say it's Tatum, it's Brown. Well, now you didn't have that vertical spacing last year with, hey, if Brooke Lopez makes that decision, if the initial defense gets beat and Brooke Lopez steps up, well, you can throw a lob to Rob. You couldn't do that with Al Horford. Al was usually out getting ready for a three. This is not an indictment on Al. Al hit a bunch of threes tonight. Al was big in this game, and he's going to be big in a buck series, especially the way that he defends Giannis. But that's an element that's a wrinkle to the offense the Celtics did not have last season. Okay. Number five on my list in terms of some of the advantages the Celtics would have in a Bucs series. Brogdon. <laughs> he wasn't on the team last year. And Brogdon was really good off the bat in this game. Layup hard left, 29-24. And I do think it's interesting that he was the first guy off the bench tonight. I'll get into that in a second, why I think that is. Then he feeds Rob on a double. We mentioned that play earlier. High dr- hard drive on Holiday. And he moved Holiday. Okay, made it 63-38 at that particular point in time. But that, to me, kind of stuck out. Like, Drew Holiday doesn't get moved. This is a very strong guard. Brogdon knocked him back. Then he drove right, and he dunked. Hard drive right again, gets to the line on Crowder. Crowder is not the same defender anymore. I think we can all agree on that. And then he had a hard drive after the Tatum steal. Finds Al for a wide-open three to make it 70-40. to So Brogdon in this game, 14 points. He's a plus 41. Last time out against Milwaukee, 26 points. I believe that Brogdon really gets fired up to play his former team. And I bet part of it, too, is, hey, after he left, they won the championship ring. So I'm sure that certainly factors in. But one of the interesting things about the Bucs is if you look at their defensive shot profile, and this is via cleaning the glass, they give up 28.8% of their shots at the rim. That's the second fewest. So they don't let you get to the rim. In the short mid-range, runners, floaters, that type of stuff, 24.8% of the shot attempts. That's the third most in the NBA. So they want you to take those shots because those are inefficient, tough shots. Long mid-rangers, 12.9%. That's the most in the NBA. So they give up the third most short mid-rangers and the most long mid-rangers. And then they give up the fewest corner threes, 6.6%. And 26.9% of their shots are non-corner threes, the 11th most. So they will give those above-the-break threes up, right? So they force teams into those inefficient shots. And what we saw at times last year in that series against the Bucs is, okay, when the Celtics hit their short mid-rangers, they won. In the wins, they were at 45.6%. And on those non-corner threes, they were at 41.8%. So they shot really well. In the losses, they were at 28.9% of the short mid-rangers compared to the wins at 45.6%. And on the non-corner threes, they were at 29% compared to the 41%, as I alluded to. So that's just the math of it is like, okay, if you hit your short mid-rangers and if you hit your non-corner threes against the Bucs, okay, you're going to be successful. So I think what the Brogdon addition does is it helps you in those areas, but secondarily, it helps you in another area. So first with how it helps you in the current area where you have to hit non-corner threes, Brogdon this season is shooting 46% of non-corner threes. That's in the 94th percentile. He's also hitting 44.5% of his pull-up threes, which is one of the best marks in the NBA. So he can hit 
above the break threes and he can hit pull up above the break threes. Like that's different. Like Al Horford is a great above the break three shooter, but he's a standstill guy, right? He's a catch and shoot. He's a spot up guy with Malcolm Brogdon. This is an element you didn't have where it's a third guy because Jalen and Jason Tatum have not been efficient as pull up three point shooters. Now tonight, totally different scenario, but in totality in their careers, they haven't been. Brogdon has been really consistent when it comes to that this year. And going back to the Jalen theme of the defenders, well, if Brogdon's on the court with Tatum or Jalen Brown, who's covering Malcolm Brogdon? He's just going to have an advantage in that matchup. Like we saw Grayson Allen on him at times. Like he's just going to own that matchup. So that's another element. The other thing that I mentioned in terms of we know about the above the break threes, we know about the short mid rangers, we know that. It's important that you can have guys that can hit pull-up shots against the Bucs. But secondarily, here's the other thing about Brogdon. It's his drive game. So ordinarily, you wouldn't think it's a good idea to drive against the Bucs. Well, what we've seen with Rob in the lineup where you can throw lobs to him, and if you can make the defense move around, then you can free up some easy opportunities in terms of some corner threes or just easy opportunities at the basket. We saw both of those tonight. So the Celtics last year against the Bucs in that series, they shot just 41.5% on their drives. And just to put in perspective what an awful number that is, the Knicks were last in the NBA last season in terms of their field goal percentage on drives at 44.3%. Well, the first two games against the Bucs, now the final numbers aren't tallied in terms of the tracking data. We don't have it yet on the game on Thursday night, but the first two games against the Bucs this season, the Celtics were shooting 55.8% of their drives and Dallas leads the NBA at 54.5%. So they're shooting a higher field, and that's because of Luka, right? They're shooting a higher field goal percentage on drives than the best team in the NBA as it pertains to that specifically. So that's a really important thing. And part of it, and a real reason for it, is Brogdon. Brogdon this season is third on the team in drives per game at 11. If you actually did it over 36 minutes, like per 36, because Brogdon plays way less than 36, and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum play more than 36 minutes, it would be about 15.8, which would lead the team by a wide margin if he actually played 36 minutes per game. And Brogdon is shooting 49.8% on his drives. He also has 83 assists on drives this season. That is 50 more than any other Celtic player entering tonight. Excuse me, 30 more because Derek White is 53. Sorry, I did my math there wrong. So 50 more than any other Celtic entering Thursday. And he had another tonight. But anyway, so last season, he averaged 9.5 points on drives, which is 10th in the NBA, 2.4 assists on drives, which was fifth in the NBA. And if you think about what this means in a potential series against the Bucs, it's putting pressure on your defense, right? Where now that defense you want to play, you have another guy that can make plays and get into the lane. So with Brogdon specifically, when he's playing with Tatum or Brown, he's not the main attraction, right? He's not the main focal point. So when you get that ball flying around and you get, you're breaking the defense down where Tatum drives right, and then he gets help, he kicks it out, and then they swing it back the other way, and Malcolm Brogdon, second side action there, he's going against a weak defender, and he's going against the defense that has already moved. So the defense is already in a scramble mode. So what I do love about this move, and I'm sure Brad Stevens and company thought about this when they brought in Malcolm Brogdon, is, okay, yeah, we know the math game against the Bucks. We got to hit these shots. We got to hit these threes. But another way we can do that and make everything easier for ourselves is get another guy that can drive and get to the basket. That's why I think the Rob Brogdon sort of pairing coming off the bench in tonight's game was an interesting one because Brogdon is such a good driver. Rob is such a big lob threat that I do think this is a way that you can really impact that Bucks defense and that you can really break down that Bucks defense. So it's just another wrinkle that this team didn't have last year. So those are my five advantages that I think the Celtics have over the Bucks. Okay, one other thing I wanted to get to Celtics related 
is just a Marcus Smart theory here. So Smart played well tonight. 10 points, 8 assists, and he found Jalen Brown three times on backdoor cuts. I referenced that earlier with Jalen Brown in terms of the backdoor cuts. But here's my theory is we've all talked about the struggles that Marcus Smart has had for large portions of the season and the whole Derek White debate and all that. So if you look at Marcus Smart in the season, the on-off differential is plus 1.4, which is in the 66th percentile, which it's not great, but I mean, it's slightly above, it's above average. Last year, though, he was in the 80th percentile, the on-off differential 3.9, meaning they outscore the opponent by 3.9 points in terms of per 100 possessions, in terms of that's the increase. So it's a large increase, 3.9, almost four points you increase and this year, it's just at 1.4. You look at Derek White, that on-off difference plus 4.0 is in the 86 percentile compared to the 1.4 for Marcus. And then the other component is prior to tonight, and I didn't see this lineup on the court sit together, but that starting five that you wanted to have all season long, smart with Tatum, Jalen, Allen, Rob, they had played 81 minutes together, and they were outscored by 27 points. White with Tatum, Jalen, Allen, Rob, so basically the starting lineup except you swap out White for Marcus Smart, 69 minutes, they were a plus 64. So you're talking about, what, a 91-point swing, if you will. So I think what's happening here, and Smart looked good tonight, and I'll acknowledge that, and I thought that was big. I thought putting him on Giannis early, that was a nice move by Missoula. But I think what's happening here is I don't think that Joe Missoula, and this is nothing about being a rookie head coach, I just think that Joe Missoula right now doesn't want to fuck with Marcus Smart coming back from an injury. And I can totally comprehend where he's coming from there, where he's saying, okay, let's try to get him right. Because if Marcus Smart gets right, if he gets even to 80% of the defender he was last year, if he can get healthy enough, right? Because I think a lot of it has to do with health for Marcus Smart. Well, you need that guy, right? And then you're really cooking with gasoline. But I think he knows based on the numbers, all the numbers, all the impact data would tell you that Derek White has been incredible for this team this season. So I know that it's frustrating for us, especially me. I've talked about it a million times. I know it's aggravating for us when we see Derek White on the bench closing some of these games. But I think the theory has to be they're trying to get Marcus Smart right for the postseason. And if he's not right in the playoffs, that's when Joe Mazzulla, I would hope and I believe that Joe Mazzulla would go away from Marcus Smart and say, hey, let's close out the game with Derek White. He knows he has that card to play. If he has to go to that card, he can do it in the playoffs. But I think right now... They just don't want to screw anything up in terms of have these issues, right? Because if it's in the playoffs, Marcus Smart, there can't really be as big of an issue, right? If you do that during the regular season, that could become a problem. You do that in the playoffs and your team wins. What's Marcus going to say? Last year when Ime Adoka did that, Ime gave him credit after the game for being a good teammate. And Marcus isn't going to say anything, right? Because the team won. If you do it during the regular season, then it becomes a problem and, and it becomes a problem all year long. So I think what Joe Mazzulla do, is doing here. He's choosing not to have this battle right now with Marcus Smart. And I truly believe that he wants Smart to be the guy out there closing games because we've seen what an impact he can have from a defensive perspective in years past. But I don't think he wants to ruffle feathers with the organization or with his team right now by having Smart be an issue and be upset that he's not closing these games. So my hope is that, first of all, my hope is that Smart just plays the way he did tonight and then we're feeling good about this thing. But my hope is in the postseason, if Smart isn't playing the way that he needs to play, then he has that card to play, does Missoula, which is putting in Derek White. So that's my theory. The reason, and I know we've got worked up about it all season long, believe me, I've been at the front of the line, but I believe that's the theory on that. They're just trying to get Marcus Smart right. As bad as the numbers have looked at times, they're just trying to get him right. 
All right, a lot more to get into. We're, we're going to get into the Bees, the President's Cup trophy, which, of course, they have won. But we'll get into the Sox next. An interesting opening day at Fenway. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. And as I was saying off the top, I really thought the Red Sox were going to come back and win their opener. Unfortunately, it did not go that way for them Thursday afternoon at Fenway Park because the reason I thought they were going to win was that ninth inning, right? So Tapia pinch hits. And Tapia is a guy, when I tell you he doesn't walk, he does not walk. Last season, he walked 3.7% of the time, which was 203rd out of 205 hitters that had at least 300 plate appearances. So it's only two guys that walk less frequently than Tapia. And Batista comes into this game, he has no command, and Tapia walks. So when Tapia walks, I'm thinking to myself, okay, here we go. The Sox have a golden opportunity here because Batista does not have it. He is in major trouble. This guy does not have it. And then Verdugo comes up, 204 seamer, middle-middle singles. So now you're cooking with gasoline. You're thinking, okay, first and second, nobody out. The $330 million man, Rafael Devers, is coming to the plate. And unfortunately, I thought Rafi did a lot of good things in the opener. I'll get into those in a second here. But he did not come through when you needed to, him to in this game. And the thing that sticks out to me about that at-bat from Rafi is Batista doesn't have it. And Rafi swung at a splitter that was way out of the strike zone, way down. And that's a situation right there when you're thinking about it from Rafi's perspective. You sort of got Batista back on track because the next splittery through to Rafi, which was a strike, was just filthy. Nobody was hitting that thing. And then he got Rafi on a fastball up in the zone. So I thought, unfortunately, Rafael Devers, that first pitch was just so critical to the outcome of the game. And Devers could not come through in that particular situation. But you still had a chance because Turner singled on a splitter and Turner had a nice day as well. That made it 10 to 8. And then Yoshida, Taylor made double play ball. And it's just a brutal throw over to first base from Mateo. So the Red Sox were able to make it 10-9. to 9. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, this is made for the Red Sox. Rafi strikes out, but now you still have a chance. And unfortunately, Adam Duvall goes down and strikes. That's the end of the game. And overall, you felt like, okay, a golden opportunity the Red Sox had. Rafi doesn't come through. And then Duvall with the strikeout. Unfortunately for the Red Sox, they lose the opener 10-9. to 9. So... I want to get to some of the ugly things in this game, and then I'll get to some of the more positive things. Oh, by the way, one thing I just really enjoyed is, and one thing we're going to enjoy all season long because it's going to happen a lot. Remember, Cassis last season when he came up, 20% walk rate. So one out of every five at-bats he was walking. Did you notice what he does? He says where the pitch is. There was a changeup that was really close on a 1-1 count, and he just said down. There was another pitch where he just said, oh, I love this. Like, the last time I was entertained watching a Red Sox take walks is Kyle Schwarber because he just spit on everything. You see it with like Juan Soto kind of like he like is almost like arrogant when he takes a close strike, right? I love how 
you have Cassis up there, who we already know is a unique character with painting his nails, the sunbathing stuff, all that different type of stuff that we found out over the past, what, year and change now. But that, to me, is just hilarious. He's <laughs> just saying down and out. He knows exactly where the pitch is. So I'm going to love watching Cassis take walks, which is ordinarily something you don't say about a baseball player. But anyway, I did want to get to Corey Kluber because I'm not going to panic over this. The guy was not himself on Thursday, and it burned him. The command, it was flat-out horrific, right? Four walks. And here's the good news from a Red Sox perspective. He did the same thing in his first start of 2022. And after that, he only had multiple walks in two games the rest of the way, and he never walked more than two guys in a single game last season. So that's the good news, right? He did this exact same thing when he was a Tampa Bay Ray in 2022. So we've seen this before. And if you just look at it, we know Corey Kluber, this guy is a strike thrower, 3.0% walk rate last season, which was first among starters. And today he walks four guys out of the 19 batters he faces, which is 21.1%. No starter last season was north of 11%. So this was just, this wasn't just bad for Corey Kluber. This would have been fucking horrible for Nick Pavetta. He just did not have his command whatsoever, right? And with this new version of Corey Kluber, he is a low strikeout guy, right? So last season, just a 20.2% strikeout rate, which was 44th out of 61 starters, a minimum of 150 innings. So the problem there is you can't, if you're Kluber, you cannot afford to fall behind hitters because you don't have the stuff at this particular point in your career to make guys miss like you did when you were winning Cy Young's. So what happens is you get more predictable, right? The opponent knows what's coming. And what happens is they were just crushing the ball were the war, uh, were the Orioles in this game on Thursday. So if you look at it going back to 2022, he did a really good job limiting loud contact. So if you look at his hard hit rate, balls off the bat 95 plus miles an hour, he was at 34.7% last year, which was 17th out of those 61 starters that I mentioned. Today, or I should say on Thursday, 11 batted balls, six were hard hit. That's a 54.5% hard hit rate. So north of 50% of the balls coming off the bat today were hard hit against Kluber. No qualified starter was north of 47% last season. So he was way above the worst guy in the league. And he was elite in terms of giving up soft contact last season. I mean, 47%, that's living in the Nick Pavetta territory. Pavetta was second to last last year at 46%, just over 46%. So that's what Kluber was doing today. Now, the thing is his command, which has been such a strength of him in terms of the second act of the Corey Kluber career, today he threw 80 pitches, 48 strikes. That's 60% in terms of the strike rate. No qualified starter last season was south of 62%. And Kluber was second in Major League Baseball at 69.5%. Today's at 60. The worst guy was at 62. So again, this is an elite strike thrower that got himself into trouble today because he had trouble. He had issues with his command. Then I talk about the fact that he was falling behind and he was becoming more predictable. So if you look at just first pitch strikes in this game, the first inning he was one for six. Now he got better after that nine of 19, but that's still bad, right? We're talking about 47.4%. He was at 68.4% last season in terms of his first pitch strike rate. That was fourth among starters. The guy that was last in Major League Baseball last year in terms of starters was Mitch Keller at 57.1. Kluber's living in the 47 percentile or 47.4% today, which is just a horrific number. So what happens is that brutal command, it leads to Kluber getting lit up. So some examples of that, you look at the first inning, for example, he strikes out Mullins on a two-seamer. 
And you're thinking, okay, here we go. Corey Kluber, a strikeout to start the day. But then after that, Rushman goes deep. That guy's a tremendous player. Only issue with Rushman is running the bases. But nonetheless, he goes deep on a 2-0 sinker, which here's the problem. He fell behind Rushman 2-0. This is the Orioles, by far their most talented hitter. He'll probably be the best player of the season. I mean, I'm just giving some respect to the older players on that roster, the Cedric Mullins of the world, et cetera. But that is a middle-in fastball sinker, so to speak, two-seamer at 87. Just a horrible spot, but the problem is he knows that it's coming, right? He knows that Kluber has to get back in the at-bat, so he's going to come with his two-seamer because that's what he uses against lefties. So Rushman knows exactly what's coming, and it's coming at 87. So basically, that's a BP fastball for Rushman that he takes out of the ballpark, and it all happens because the command wasn't there. So then he strikes out Santander and a cutter up in the zone. You're thinking, okay, maybe he gets back into it here. But then he walked Mountcastle, and this is a situation where... He was ahead 1-2, and then he just couldn't get it back together in the at-bat. Like, you're ahead, and then you kind of just fell apart, right? He missed badly on two curveballs, and he missed badly on a changeup. Those pitches just weren't competitive, right? Like, this is the problem. Those pitches were not tempting enough for Mountcastle to swing. When you get ahead 1-2, you should be able to get out of that at-bat. And unfortunately for Kluber, the command was just so bad that he couldn't find the strike zone there, and he couldn't even make anything enticing enough for Mountcastle to offer at. Then he walked Henderson on five pitches— two sinkers that were not even close, and a curveball that wasn't close. Now, luckily, he's able to get Urias to ground out on a cutter. So he got out of that inning only giving up the one run, but you could kind of tell in that first inning, things did not look great. Now, he did settle down a bit in the second inning. He had a 1-2-3 inning, but we did see the difference sort of between the current version of Corey Kluber and the old version of Kluber. So he struck out Frazier on a sinker. Nice pitch, but this is after he got ahead 1-2. So he threw seven more pitches, including Frazier fouling off four pitches. That's the difference, right? So when he was himself in 2017, when he was vintage Kluber, he had a 33.6% whiff rate. That just means how often a guy, when they swing at your pitch, they whiff. That was in the 93rd percentile. Last season, that number was down to 23.9%, which is in the 34th percentile. So what was happening is he got ahead of Frazier one, two, and he couldn't put him away because he doesn't have the same stuff that he once had. Okay, and part of that too is command. Like the command was just bad as we alluded to. Third inning was fine, but he did make a mind-numbing decision. He didn't allow a run, but Santander did double on an 0-1-4 seamer, which that came off the bat 98.6 miles an hour. I don't understand. So last year, Corey Kluber, the left-handed hitters, he threw 16 four-seamers. That's because a four-seamer from a righty, is not going to work against a left-handed hitter. I don't know why he threw that. That made no sense to me whatsoever to choose that pitch. You only threw 16 of them last year to lefties. Why would you throw one to Santander, who's a good hitter? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. But then the fourth inning is really when the wheels came off, right? He walked Henderson on five pitches, two non-competitive sinkers, and a non-competitive curveball. And here's the thing. With Kluber, even going back to last season, he had a 35.7% chase rate, right? That's in the 96th percentile. So even though he's not striking guys out, he's able to get weak contact, as we alluded to with the hard hit rate, because guys are chasing pitches out of the zone. The problem for Kluber today is those pitches that were out of the strike zone, anybody could have laid off them. They just were not competitive pitches. And then after that, Urias Homer on a cutter that was up in the zone, just a bad, bad pitch that came off the bat. 102.8 102.8 miles per hour. That made it 3-1. to one. Hayes lines out on a cutter, but then Frazier doubles on a curveball. Middle-middle, again, just brutal location. Mateo singled on a sinker that was up in the zone. More bad location. So it's not just about the walks. It's the fact that 
you're missing in the zone, which at times can be even more damaging like we saw today. And then he walked Mullins on a curveball that was up, and then finally Cora went out there, got him out of the game. So in all, it's six hits, it's four walks, it's five earned, it's two bombs, and just three and a third. And this is the problem with Kluber. He's not a ground ball pitcher, right? Just 36.1% last season, which was 57th out of 61 qualifiers. So when he's giving up rockets, right, when he's giving up loud contact, it's going to leave the ballpark, and at the very least, it's getting in the air. So what we'll see is when Kluber's on, he's going, and he gets guys to chase, as I alluded to with that number, he's going to get weak fly balls. So 17.3% infield ground ball or infield fly ball rate last year. That's a really good number. 17.3% of his batted balls, think about this, are infield pop-ups, which that just tells you the hitter doesn't have his timing and Kluber's in control. That was second best in all of Major League Baseball behind only Justin Verlander last year. So that's the weak contact that Kluber is going to get. It's going to be pop-ups in the infield. So it's just a big command thing because if he doesn't have it, it's not like he's still going to get ground balls. The problem for Kluber is what happens when he's not on His balls are getting hit out of the ballpark. But as we said, this is something that I just want to reiterate. I believe he's going to get back to the guy that we saw from the majority of last season, which is a quality back end of the rotation guy, right? Despite the fact that he started opening day, Kluber is not meant to be a race. That is supposed to be Chris Sale, maybe eventually Garrett Whitlock, and maybe Brian Bale. Like those are supposed to be the guys on this team with very high upsides in terms of their chances this season. Kluber is supposed to be a back end of the guy. Next time out, I bet he gives you five innings and he gives you three runs or so and he puts you in a place to win the game. It's just the command wasn't there. He wasn't sharp. But the good news is we can go back to as recently as last season and say the same thing happened. But the problem is when that command's not there and you're getting balls in the air, you're in major, major trouble because guys are just hitting the shit out of the ball when you're putting it in bad spots because the stuff isn't what it was a couple of years ago. And man, some of those misses were just bad. All right, so I do want to get to Brazier because... Clearly, they still believe in him within the organization. And we saw flashes last year where we'd have a good stretch because everything was on the ground. But for the most part, it was not great last year. It's not been great over the past couple of years. And I know he's dealt with some injuries, as we all know. But if you look at the numbers from 2022, the fly ball to ground ball rate is about even. So about 40% of his batted balls are in the air. So if that's the case, or at least fly balls, I should say, you have to do one of two things. If you're going to be basically even in terms of ground ball to fly ball rate. You have to strike out guys at a high rate, or you have to induce a lot of soft contact, kind of like what we mentioned with Corey Kluber. Brazier does neither. So Brazier last season was at 24.3% as it pertains to his strikeout rate. That's below average, 87th out of 152 qualified relievers. Okay, his hard hit rate. So balls off the bat 95 plus miles an hour, that's at 46.5%. That's 151st. Out of 152 qualified relievers. So only one guy is giving up more loud contact on a percentage standpoint than Ryan Brazier. The barrel rate. So the percentage of batted balls that are barreled up is at 8.6%, 125th out of those 152 relievers. And what it all adds up to is a 273 opponent's batting average in 2022, which was a hundred and forty-first in Major League Baseball. So because you don't get strikeouts and you don't get soft contact, and you don't get balls on the ground, you're going to get absolutely clobbered. And we saw that all last season, for the most part, outside a couple of decent runs. So today, the command was brutal too. Usually, he doesn't walk a lot of guys, and he did that today, but he'll miss in the zone, which is, as we mentioned, with the hard hit rate and the type of batted balls, that can be way more damaging. And we've seen that time after time with Ryan Brazier. 
And now we have an added problem with Brazier in 2023. Brazier is slow to the plate to begin with, and now there's a pitch clock. So what happens here is, this is really troubling, and I hope this is something that they address before his next appearance, is he waits almost until the pitch clock runs down before he delivers the ball to the plate. So the problem with this is, the Orioles know that Brazier's slow to the plate. So they can just look at this thing and say, okay, he's waiting until the pitch clock gets down, which then gives the runner the ability to get a jump and he's slow to the plate. So basically, poor Reese McGuire is sitting back there and he has no chance at throwing out a runner. So Brazier is slow to the plate. I don't think that's going to change. This guy's in his 30s. It's not going to change at this particular point in time. But what he can do is throw the ball quicker. Don't wait until the pitch clock is running down. That was just mind-numbing to me. Like, if anybody should be throwing the ball quickly, it should be Ryan Brazier. What are you doing? Throw the ball. I don't get it whatsoever. I felt bad for McGuire. At one point, he didn't even throw it down to a second because what was he going to do? But anyway, just some of the issues in the opener. He hits Urias with a 3-1 sinker. Right then and there, you knew the command wasn't there. But then, luckily, he gets Hayes to ground into a double play, and you're thinking, okay, hey, maybe uh, Ryan Brazier can actually get out of this inning. But no, certainly doesn't happen. He walked Frazier. He had a slider that was in the dirt. And then a four-seamer that was not competitive. Just non-competitive pitches were sort of the theme of opening day for the Red Sox. Then Frazier's still second, not even close, because he let the pitch clock run down. I mean, that thing that is going to irritate the hell out of me if he continues to be on the mound and go with that approach. It's just, that is not going to be acceptable going forward for him. But then Mateo singles on a sinker that was middle-middle, came off the bat 101.7. So, yeah, not a walk, but brutal location. You can't be throwing middle-middle sinkers, two-seamers, right? And then Frazier scored... After he had stolen a base, so he scores, he makes it 6-2. to two. Then, after that, Mateo steals second, and then he goes to third on a wild pitch, and then he walks Mullins. Mullins steals second. I mean, this is like, basically, this is like, these guys are just running like crazy out there. I mean, basically, it's like an automatic double. If you get on first base, Ryan Brazier should go up to these guys, basically with like a token, hey, now you're awarded second base because he can't hold you on. And he's not helping himself out by waiting on the pitch clock. It's just mind-numbing to me. But then Rushman singled on a four-seamer that was middle-middle. Brutal pitch after being ahead 1-2 in the count. That made an 8-2 ball game. He did get Santander to line out. But what this all added up to for Brazier, 35 pitches, 16 strikes, (laughs) 45.7%, two walks, hit a batter, as we alluded to, wild pitch, two for seven first first pitch strikes, 28.6%, which is just, it's incredibly bad. And he's not a guy that has good stuff, so it's not like you can make up for that, right? I mean, you're falling behind if you're Ryan Brazier, you're porked. Two hits, five balls in play, three of them hard hit, going back to that theme, 60% hard hit rate, just brutal. Three stolen bases, I mean, like we said, get on base, you're just running around on Ryan Brazier, three earned runs, so he was horrible. And look, the Sox lost this game by one run. Brazier needs to do his job to keep you in the game. If he's going to be out there, he's got to do his job. And maybe... We don't see Ort in that seventh inning if Brazier doesn't give up all those runs and Ort gave up two runs, right? So here's the problem is this, and my buddy Lou Merloni, who was calling the game today, he tweeted this out, that you have your high leverage relievers that you use when you have the lead. But if your low leverage guys can't keep you in the game, put up zeros, you don't have a shot. And that's the thing, like you're not going to bring in John Schreiber or Chris Martin into a 5-2 game in the fifth inning. You got to get through that and get it to the high relievers, get yourself back in the ball game. And to me, Brazier just was in was incapable of doing that today. And it amazes me that they love Brazier so much. I just don't see the upside with the guy. I really don't. And look, you can go through it, like I said, and find these good stretches. 
But it's pretty much over the past few years, if you just add up the whole thing, the whole resume of Ryan Brazier, and look, we'll forever be grateful for what he did for this team in 2018. But the past couple of years, you add up what he's done, it adds up to shit. He's just not a very good reliever. And I don't know why there is this infatuation with Ryan Brazier. And quite frankly, as a guy that enjoys watching Red Sox games, I would enjoy not watching him anymore. I just think that ship has sailed. I don't want to see Ryan Brazier on the mound anymore. But if he is, the guy's at least got to be able to throw balls in the strike zone because right now he's not doing that. All right, Christian Arroyo, I felt like, okay, he had a big hit late in this game, the two-run double in the eighth off Baker, which, look, nothing like a cement mixer. That was a brutal pitch, cement mixer, that Arroyo's able to double. And look, you should hit mistakes. I'm giving Arroyo credit for that, but that was a brutal pitch. That makes it 10 to 7. But before that, man, he just had two horrendous at-bats. And this is a guy that right now, with the injury to Mondesi, you need this guy to play every day. And he just looked not great at the plate today, to put it lightly. You look at the fact that he grounded into a double play that was a middle-middle sinker with the bases drunk. I mean, the bases are loaded. Middle-middle cookie there. You got to do something with that. And then he put himself in an 0-2 hole in his next at-bat by swinging at a sweeper that was not even close. And then he grounded out on another sweeper that was out in the zone. So he swung at a bad one, and then he grounded out on a bad one. Like, he's just going to be more disciplined. And this is kind of what I questioned about Arroyo going forward. I'm just not so sure this guy can be an everyday player. He can do it defensively. I just wonder in terms of his ability at the plate, or at least his approach at the plate. So if you look at Arroyo last year, he swung at 38.9% of pitches out of the strike zone. That ranked 257th out of 277 hitters with at least 300 plate appearances. So this guy swings at a ton of pitches out of the zone, hence the fact that he only walked 4.3% of the time last year, which was 253rd out of those 277 hitters. He needs to show more discipline. He doesn't hit for enough power to be such a free swinger like he is. Like today, those are just bad at bats. Those are just bad swings when the team had chances to come back in this game. And I know the double was on a slider, but it was a bad pitch. I mean, it was a cement mixer. But we got to find out, can he actually hit righties? Because for his career, 243 against righties, just a 306 on base and a 390 slugging percentage and a 696 OPS. And this guy right now, look, he got enough good hitters in the lineup, but he's going to be in the lineup every day right now. This is his chance to prove that he can be, be an everyday player in Major League Baseball. And I just felt like there were two really, really bad at bats. And I just wonder right now, if a guy that, does not hit righties, and he doesn't hit for power, is he an everyday player? And he doesn't walk. Like, from an offensive perspective, you don't walk, you don't hit for power, and you don't hit right-handed pitching. I just, from my perspective, Christian Arroyo has not proven he can be an everyday player, and today was more evidence of that. Now, we'll see. He's got a long runway here, and I hope he makes it. Like, I want him to be good. I just, based on what we've seen from the player throughout his career, I just don't see it happening. All right, Yoshida, I'm going to try to calm down on this one because... This was good. Let's get to some of the good with this game today. Yoshida, I'm all in. I am all in. And I was basically all in before the season. And look, I know that ninth inning, it should have been a double play, blah, blah, blah. But overall, the contact was loud. 99.8, 100.5, 97.9, 108.4. So all those are considered over the threshold of 95 miles an hour, hard hit balls. Yoshida, by the way, singled on a four-seamer that was up in the zone. Made an 8-3 game, and that was off a lefty. Cora said before the game today he's going to hit lefties. I have no doubt that he's going to hit lefties. Then he hammered a single on a four-seamer that was down and in. Just a really nice piece of hitting. Ever since he hit that home run in the World Baseball Classic on a changeup that was in the uh, inside, and he was able to get his hands around that, I'm like, this guy is a genius of a hitter. And we saw that today. I'm trying to calm down. I'm trying to calm down, but this guy is going to rake at the major league level. 
And then I thought defensively, which this is the big critique on him, I thought he played well. In the seventh inning, he threw out Rushman at second, and it's a nice throw because you're not going to get Mullins at the plate there. He's super fast, and he's already at second. So you go and you get Rushman at second. That was a nice throw by Yoshida. And then earlier in the game, he threw a strike to Rafi, who was the cutoff man, and then Rafi was able to throw out Rushman at second, who, like I alluded to earlier, the only mistakes Rushman made today were on the bases. But that was a really nice throw that he made there. So I think defensively, playing left field at Fenway, the guy's going to be able to hold up. And quite frankly, what we saw today, the bat plays, baby. The bat plays. And I cannot wait to watch this guy the rest of the season. Did you hear what he said after the game, too? I'm paraphrasing here, but he said he was really cold, but his heart was really warm. So he was really excited for the game. And if I paraphrase that slightly wrong, I'm sorry. But I'm just very excited about Yoshida. Cannot control myself when I'm thinking about this guy playing every day for the Red Sox. They may have underpaid him, people. Everyone's saying they overpaid him. They may have underpaid this guy. And are you going to say... Like, I'm going to get something like four weeks from now. Hey, Brian, remember what you said about Yoshida when he goes through like an 0 for 25 stretch? Fuck it. I believe in the guy. All right, let's get to Verdugo because I loved what he did in the opener. First step out of the game, he tripled on a 92-mile-an-hour four-seamer that was middle-middle, which I love. It's just attacking right off the bat from Verdugo. And Verdugo crushes fastballs. 350 last year, a 5'11 slugging percentage. Best guy on the team the past two years, handling high velocity, pitches north of 95 miles an hour. And 92 miles an hour certainly is not, but this guy feasts on fastball. But we talked about him in the leadoff spot on Tuesday and why it made sense to me. And I really think that what Cora likes is a guy that's going to come after you right away. And Verdugo will certainly do that. He is going to attack. And he's getting the bench into the game after that triple, like getting everybody going the first hit of the game for the Red Sox after Kluber had given up the home run in the first. I just like the energy he plays with. Then, of course, Rafi drove him in to tie that game up. But Verdugo then on a 204 seamer middle-middle 99.2 99.2 miles per hour off the bat in the ninth inning after the Tapia walk, and he's getting the bench going again. He's getting the crowd into it. So I liked it. My only critique is in that ninth inning on the single from Turner. I, I don't know why he wasn't at third. He should have been at third. I don't know what he was doing. He like kind of fell asleep on the bases. Maybe he's just like too hyped up getting into the game. But overall, based on the slimmed down version of himself, the fact that he said he's motivated from Alex Cora calling him out, I'm starting to fall into the trap again. The Alex Verdugo breakout season. I said it last year. I said it the year before that. I'm starting to fall for it again. So we know he's going to hit right-handed pitching, and we know he's going to hit fastballs. The big thing to me is, can he do more damage against breaking balls and off-speed pitches? So last year, just 206 against breaking balls, 202 against off-speed pitches. The expected average is slightly better, 259 and 218. But that the, that's the big thing to me. Continue to murder fastballs. We know he's going to do that. This guy is very good at hitting high velocity. And he's, he comes up with very big hits, too. I mean, I go back to that Yankees game last year where I guess in the long run it didn't mean much, but he forced extras and he had the game winner. He had the walk-off hit in that game as well, that wild extra innings game. But the other thing is if you look at it, he has one year left of arbitration. This is it, man. You want a long-term contract extension with this team? Get that batting average up. Get that on-base percentage up. And... I quite frankly, I give him a lot of credit for coming into camp in significantly better shape than the shape that he was in last year. He definitely, you can, it's noticeable. Like he looks significantly more athletic. If he can ever hit curveballs at a higher rate and hit off-speed pitches at a higher rate, I mean, you have a really good player and there's no reason he shouldn't be able to do that. He's got an elite bat in terms of his bat to ball skills. So I'm excited for Verdugo this season and it was a good start to him. How about Rafi? We mentioned I hated the last at bat. That was putrid. Swing at that splitter that was way down. I mean, come on. You can't do that. Like, we all understand that was bad. But other than that, I thought Rafi made a nice play in the field, cutting down Rushman at second base, where he went out and got that, threw him out. That was a nice play. And then at the plate, 
In the first inning, what I really liked about his approach is Verdugo had tripled. So he didn't try to do too much. On a 1-1 count, he got a changeup that if he tried to hit that ball to the ballpark, he's probably missing. So he just makes contact, hits it to first base. You bring in the run, you make it one-to-one, right? So I like that approach from Rafi, and I give him credit for that to be able to sort of harness his emotions because you know that Rafi wants to hit that ball out of the ballpark, right? Especially he just signed the contract. He's got the big deal. He's now the, without question the face of the organization and he's able not to overswing there because here's the thing about Rafi. This guy absolutely clobbers off speed pitches. Last year, 319 and a 509 slug. And in that spot, it takes a lot of discipline not to overswing there. So I give him credit for that. Now he didn't show that discipline as we said in the ninth inning. But then in the fourth, when you're down 5-1, you need a spark. That's when he tried to do his damage, right? Rafi doubled on a changeup that was down in the zone from uh, from Gibson, 106.1 miles an hour off the bat, ground rule double, and that's when you say, okay, now I need to get my team going. He does it there, and eventually he scores on the Duvall single, and then in the sixth inning, when it's 8-2, he got that rally going where he singled on a curveball away that wasn't a strike, where I thought that was just a really nice piece of hitting where... Rafi, as as we mentioned with Verdugo, incredible bat-to-ball skills, and he can just hit it the other way and easily singled, right? And nice piece of hitting. Didn't even clobber at 89.9 miles per hour off the bat, but it's just, hey, hit the ball where it is, and he did that, and he's able to get that rally going. But Rafi going the other way, hitting that curveball to left, this is something I think that he could even add to his arsenal even more. He gets pitched away a lot, naturally, because of his power, but if you look at it last year, 26.6% of his batted balls went the opposite way. That was the 40th highest rate in Major League Baseball. That was up from 24.2% two years ago, which was 71st. So he did it more often last year. Now that hit today against Gibson, of course, he's a righty. But I think this is something he could do against lefties where the slider going away from Rafi, he hit just 238 against breaking balls against lefties last season. And I do think going the opposite way would certainly help him. And like I said, he started to do it a lot last year. I think he could do it even more. But remember, all the loud contact last year, if you go to his pre-injured list stint, July 22nd is when he went on the IL. I should say July 23rd. July 22nd was his last game before going on the IL. But before that, he had 145 hard hit balls. That's off the bat 95 plus, which was fourth in baseball. The average exit velocity was 93.5 miles an hour. That was also fourth. So he does have enough power just to go the opposite way and actually do damage. And this is what made J.D. Martinez such a great hitter, that inside-out swing. Now, Rafi's never going to have that inside-out swing, but these balls on the outside portion of the plate, he just taps them and he's going to get base hits, right? And if you look at Rafi's numbers on batted balls the opposite way last season, 402 average, which was 19th, 658 slugging percentage, which was 13th, and a 1056 OPS, which was 12th. So this is certainly something that he can help in terms elevating those numbers against lefties. Remember, we told you the 315 on base percentage against lefties last season, just the 739 OPS. This is something Rafael Devers can certainly do to do more damage against left-handed pitching, okay? But Rafi, outside of the bat at bat, he looked great. And by the way, that pitch violation, that was a fucking joke. That should have been on, if anything, on Baker, the pitcher for the Orioles, because Rafi's in the box. The pitcher's not ready with eight seconds. I don't understand how that pitching violation or that pitch clock violation, if you will, is on Rafael Devers. That, to me, was perplexing. That was bad. They get to clean that up because that was poor. All right. I do want to mention Sale because I just want to enjoy this on Saturday. I'm going to be in the building, hopefully, now. I'm hoping this game actually happens because of the fact we're looking at rain, of course, on Saturday. But I cannot remember being this fired up for a regular season baseball game. To be in the park, at least, because 
You look at this guy. I just want to believe in him again. From 2012 to 2019, eight All-Star Game appearances, 42.8 wins above replacement, according to Fangraphs. That was third behind Max Scherzer and Clayton Kershaw, like along with Verlander, the three best pitchers of the generation, and Sale was third on that list right ahead of Verlander. So those are the three best pitches, pitchers rather of that generation. Scherzer, Kershaw, and Verlander. Sale was third in war during that stretch. He had a 30.8% strikeout rate, which was third. And he only walked 5.5% of batters, which was 27th out of 238 qualifiers. That's what I love about Sale. He is just coming after you. He is just attacking you with that nasty slider, with that 95-96 that he now has back at his disposal. And you can't make loud contact off this guy. Just a 30.2% hard hit rate during that stretch, which was 13th. So this is a guy that we all enjoyed watching. This is a guy that was an entertainer on the mound. Not that he had the same flair like Pedro Martinez, but he's appointment viewing. He did unreal things on the mound. And even like the delivery was so unique, the crossfire, right? And the limbs flying everywhere. I just want to be excited to watch Chris Sale be on the mound at Fenway Park. That's what I want. And I'm starting to believe that he's the closest that he's been since 2018. We documented it. The velocity is closer than it's ever been to the guy that he was pre all these injuries. I just want to believe. I want to enjoy this. This is what we want as sports fans, right? This is a guy that was so good for so long. Even if he's, say, 80% of that guy, that's an entertaining pitcher that I want to see. So I cannot wait for sale day coming up on Saturday. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. And remember, you can get involved with the pod. You can always email us at offthepike at gmail.com. And you can also leave a voicemail, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. All right, let's get to a couple of voicemails. Who's up first? Yeah, Brian, uh, Dave calling from uh, Bangor. Just re with regard to uh, GM Brad Stevens of the Celtics, Um I don't think people are talking enough about what a great job this guy has done. You look at the four guys that he got rid of in trades, Romeo, Neesmith, Richardson, and Schrader. I don't miss any of those guys. And, and I mean, who, who said to themselves uh, over a year ago, gosh, uh, the guy that's going to put us, put us over the top uh, is uh, is Derek White? Uh, who said that? Nobody. Also, Malcolm Brogdon, Mike Muscala, Brad uh, Hauser, Luke Cornett, and uh, Blake Griffin. All these guys have been useful, and the Celtics now have the uh, the the deepest bench. Uh, in the NBA, and uh, that's all because of uh, Brad Stevens. Anyway, thanks for your time. Yeah, it's a really fair point. I've sung the praises of Brad Stevens for the past couple of years here. This guy is an outstanding general manager. In fact, 
He's a really good NBA coach, and I know that he sort of lost the locker room at the end there. You've heard me say it before. I hated his offense. It was the Bernie Sanders offense where it's you get a shot, you, everybody gets an even shot. I hated the offense because you go back to the bubble against the Heat. That year you had, or excuse me, the year before that, you had, what, five guys taking more than 10 shots per game. That's just not how it works in the NBA. So you needed Eme to sort of make a pecking order where it's Tatum gets the most shots, Jalen's gets the second most shots, and then there's a precipitous fall after that. So that's the one thing I did dislike about Brad, but he was really good in terms of ATOs, after timeout plays. His defense was always good. What he was able to do with Isaiah Thomas was flat out remarkable because you needed to keep Isaiah on the court because this guy was one of the best scorers in the league for like a two-year period. And you came up with all these crazy defenses to basically protect Isaiah Thomas. Like Brad was really good when it comes to that. But he's actually a better general manager, which is amazing to think about. And the thing I appreciate about Brad is he realized, okay, I have my two guys. I don't need to keep draft picks. So let me go out and get Derek White, who's the perfect role player for this team. And this past offseason, let me go get Malcolm Brogdon. And I talked about it when I ran through my five advantages the Celtics have at a potential Buck series. One of them is Malcolm Brogdon. He plays differently than anybody else on the Celtics team. It's a different element that they didn't have. It's almost like if a high passing attack of the NFL, all of a sudden they got a bruising running back, right? Like when the Patriots got LeGarrette Blunt, it's like, okay, we can just run the ball down your throat as well. It's just a change up that the Celtics didn't have before. He doesn't really play like anybody else on the Celtics, which I truly can appreciate. Uh, the Mascala thing, I was hoping it would have a little more of an impact just because of the shooting, but it really has. And I guess the only critique you could really have of Brad, and you'd have to give up a lot to do that, was giving up the first to go get a guy like Jakob Pertl. But again, he's going to be a free agent. How much is he going to play if you have Al and, of course, Robert Williams going forward because Al is under contract next year as well. But, I mean, that would be a fair critique. He's such a good rim protector, and he's really helped out that Toronto team. But other than that, there's really not much to criticize with Brad. I guess the one thing would be the Jalen situation, right? Because Jalen got Brad and he got Jason Tatum sort of on a three-way call, as he explained to Logan Murdoch to talk about the Kevin Durant rumors. The one thing I'll say to that is this. The Celtics, I mean, it's almost like they they had to go one of two ways here, and they sort of middled it, where it was just kind of out there. They either had to come out after it and say, we were never interested in Kevin Durant. I don't know what you're talking about. That, that report is erroneous. It never happened. We were not entertaining that idea. Or they would have had to have traded for Kevin Durant and got rid of Jalen Brown, because right now you could see that Clearly, Jalen Brown has some issues with the organization still based on the pieces we've read over the past couple of weeks. So I guess that's the one critique of Jalen is the way that Brad has sort of handled all these trade rumors. But other than that, the moves he's made on the court, absolutely tremendous. And Jalen makes the All-NBA team. It's not going to hurt Brad because Brad can just say, hey, Jalen, here's $290 million. You really don't want to be here? Like, that's kind of the card he has to play if Jalen makes an All-NBA team, which, as I've alluded to, when he's a forward, he should make that team. All right, who's up next? Brian Joe from West Virginia, opening days underway for the Boston Red Sox. Let's go Red Sox. But I'm coming to talk about the Seas. I want to start with Joe Missoula. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm firmly in Joe Mazza's corner. It's like local guy chasing the dream out of Johnson, Rhode Island. Played his college ball out here in West Virginia, Morgantown, and West Virginia University. Wasn't exactly an arrow. He got in a little bit of hot water while he was out here. But he also overcame kind of a major surgery to get back on a basketball court. So the guy's a fighter for you. And personally, 
I th- I feel it like Joe Maz is like there's a maturation process for any rookie, and he's a rookie head coach, rookie manager, rookie athlete, whatever it might be. So he's going to have his ups and downs, but by no means is he going to be the be all end all if the Boston Celtics the one to win a championship. It's going to be the players on the basketball court, and I'll tell you, the Seas have won eight championships since 1967 when the NBA went to an 82 game season. They've had a high total of 66 wins and a low of 48. So I, I don't feel like the regular season, while it has its merit, is going to be what puts, you know, what catapults you to an NBA championship. After all, the Golden State Warriors won 53 games last year and won it all. And I mean, you get some regular season wonders like the Denver Nuggets, the 76ers, the Memphis Grizzlies. Well, they do well in the regular season, usually pull up to be a no-show come playoff time. And the C's, I've got a chip on their shoulder from last year, and I feel like I really can believe that they can do it this year. Want to know who your starting five is and your closing five come playoff time for the Boston Celtics. Thanks, Brian, and you're nothing but the best at covering sports in Boston area. Thank you. All right, Joe, I appreciate it as always, and unfortunately, the Red Sox game did not go the way we wanted today. I really thought they were going to come back and win that game. I know I keep saying that, but I really thought they were going to come back and win this game, but I do believe it's going to be an interesting season for the Sox. So enjoy sale day on Saturday. As it pertains to Joe Mazzula and the Celtics, the whole idea of the chip on the shoulder, I was totally with you when they came out of the gates and they were 21-5, and and then like that loss against the Wizards really threw me off the scent a little bit, but... This win tonight, I do think that was a statement of, okay, we got to get this thing back on track. So I don't know if we're going to find out in the coming days, like, hey, Smart spoke to the team, or Jalen said something, or Tatum said something, or Al said something to the team. But this team came into the game on Thursday night with a totally different attitude and a totally different approach. And in terms of the starting and closing lineups, I truly believe at this point in time, they're going to stick with Derek White in the starting lineup because Don't you think, and now we've had a couple of games into this, don't you think they've already would have gone back to the double big lineup? Now, in terms of the closing line, so that's what I think is going to happen in terms of the starting lineup, unless it's a team that plays two bigs, right? Like if you get a series against Cleveland, which in all likelihood, based on the way that the bracket is right now, where you would get Philadelphia in the second round, Cleveland plays the two bigs when they have Jared Allen and they have Mobley. Like that series, I could see Rob Williams, but I feel like going forward now, even though... (laughs) Horford and Rob Williams' numbers have been outstanding together. They're, the Celtics are already the best defensive rebounding team in the league, but when they have Rob on the court, they go to a different stratosphere. And with Rob and Al, they're the best rebounding team in the NBA. So I do think it's going to depend on matchups and how the game goes in terms of closing it out. But without question, you have Tatum and Brown in there. You have Al in there. I think the question becomes with the other guys. I could see a lot of games where Rob is closing. I could see a lot of games where Derek White's closing. I could see games where Smart's closing. And like a game against the Bucs, I could see Brogdon closing because of his drive game. I think the one concern about Brogdon closing games would just be on the defensive side of the floor. Like if you have two small guards, I don't think he's meant for that matchup. He's much better defending up a position than down a position. But, and I know that doesn't answer your question, but I do believe that if you ask me what the best lineup is so far, the best lineup this season has been the two bigs, Allen Robb, Derek White, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum. That would be the best lineup to put on the floor at the end of games, but I think that Joe Mazzula is going to play it depending on the game situation. But that's the best lineup. That is by far the best lineup because you only have one non-shooter in Robert Williams, and we know the dynamic he brings in terms of catching lobs, things around those lines. So if you ask me what's the best lineup, that's it. I, do I know if Joe's going to close that way? No, but I do truly believe he's going to stick with Derek White 
in the starting lineup because I think they already would have made that pivot to Rob by now if they were going to go back to that, right? I mean, we're looking at, what, six games left in the season. I think they would have already made that switch. Now, the one thing, just real quickly, the one thing that does aggravate you about the Celtics and that Washington loss is the one seed was really there for you right now, right? Because what are you, two games back in Milwaukee, and you got to play Philadelphia on Monday. But if you look at Milwaukee, they still got to play Philadelphia, and they're going to play Memphis at the end of the season. Now, Memphis is two games ahead in the standings of Sacramento, but what happens if Sacramento creeps closer? Memphis could be motivated in the second last game of the season. So I do really think that Washington loss really killed you as it pertains to the one seed. And we've seen a bunch of those losses this season. So the Celtics may have a tough row. But as I said, I feel good about the matchup against Philly. All right. Thanks for the calls. The number 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Remember, you can email us as well at offthepike at gmail.com. All right. Did want to get to the Bruins quickly here because... They win in overtime 2-1 to one against the Columbus Blue Jackets on Thursday night. And now, if you look at it, the Bruins have won the President's Cup trophy. They have their 58th win. They're the best team in the NHL. And we're getting ready for the Stanley Cup playoffs, right? So one of the issues that you have had with this Bruins team is the power play. They were 0-5 for 5 against Nashville. Now, they were just 1-5 for 5 tonight where you had the goal where Zaka finds Bertuzzi to make it 1-1 at that particular point in time. But if you look at it, the last 27 games, my buddy Scott McLaughlin had this number. So the last 27 games prior to tonight, the Bees were 11 and 93 on the power play, 11.8%. Think about that. That was 31st in the NHL. This is the best team in the NHL. This is a team that has an opportunity to break records for the last 27 games. This makes it even more impressive. They were 31st on the power play. Only the Chicago Blackhawks, who were one of the worst teams in the NHL, and during that time period, they traded Patrick Kane. That's the only team that was worse. The Bruins were number two in the entire NHL in their first 47 games in the power play. So that is certainly something they have got to figure out, because if you look at it, yes, you scored tonight, but again, you're just one for five. And if you look at these recent Stanley Cup winners, you go back to the Avalanche last year, 32.8% of the power play, that led the postseason. And the Lightning two years ago were at 32.4, very similar, they were third in the postseason run that year. So both the last two Stanley Cup champions have been really good in the power play. We go back to the 2011 Bruins. They were not a good power play. They won the Stanley Cup. But the Bruins, they have enough guys where they should be better on the power play. So let's see if they, that should be a focus going down the stretch of the season or to see if they can get back on track in this one. I, I did think that this is an interesting game because you had a Columbus team that's in the basement against the Bruins team that is chasing down records and you just got fights left and right. You got Lauko against Swayze. And then you got Frederick and Lane Peterson because Bergeron got hit with a cross check and he was bleeding out of his ear. So Frederick takes on Lane Peterson, drops him in one punch, like heck of a fight by Frederick. And then later on in the game, you had the Carlo and the Jenner fight as well after Jenner had hit Carlo in the back. So this is a team, a Columbus team that is basically they have nothing left to play for. They're playing out the string. They're just getting into it with the Bruins. So I kind of appreciated the three fights. It was very entertaining. I, I would say in the third period, Omar kind of saved you where the breakaway on Johnny Goodrow, where he saves that to make sure that they do not take the lead there. And then in overtime, of course, you had the goal from Pasternak, which unbelievable pass from Lindholm. And Pasta does what Pasta does, where he gets to his backhand and easily scores. Where it wasn't a great game, but the Bruins come out of it with a 2-1 win. President's Cup trophy and all that different type of stuff. So great for the Bruins, but they do have to get the power play back on track. And the last couple of games have not been the smoothest for the Bruins. They have not been the sharpest. This is not an indictment on the team. I'm not saying I don't believe they can still win the Stanley Cup. I'm just saying the last couple of games 
and even they admitted it, have not been up to their standard. One interesting note on the Bruins, too. So this is from Darren Drager from TSN. He was on TV the other night, and he said this. We know according to reports and video that Hall, Taylor Hall, of course, has been skating with the Bruins for several days now. Sources say that he feels he's ready. The problem is the Bruins don't have the cap space to activate Hall. Now, the NHL playoffs are less than two weeks away, so it's going to be interesting to see how the Bruins manage their situation or if, like Tampa Bay a few years ago, they try and stretch it out until the start of the postseason. So basically what he's indicating there is the Bruins are trying to do what the Tampa Bay Lightning did a couple of years ago with Nikita Kucherov, where we talked about this when they put Taylor Hall on long-term IR. The idea is, okay, once the playoffs starts, you don't have to be cap compliant, and then you can just activate Taylor Hall. Now, with Nikita Kucherov, this was a totally different situation than what the Bruins have right now. The Nikita Kucherov thing was they knew they were going to eventually activate him for the playoffs, right? He didn't play the entire season, then they activated him. With the Bruins, this just isn't the case. Now, Jim Montgomery said yesterday, the only thing I can say is I know he's not cleared regarding Taylor Hall. So that report is false. Okay, so this is where Drager's report is just completely off from my perspective, is if you look at it, you could easily put Nick Foligno on long-term IR, and then you could activate Taylor Hall. So here's the question I would ask. If Taylor Hall really is ready to play in the words of Darren Drager in this report, why wouldn't they do that, right? Because if you think about it from this perspective, you know what you have in terms of your top six, right? You have the Bergeron line with Marshawn and Jake DeBrus. You have the all-check line with, of course, David Krejci, David Pasternak, and then Pavel Zaka, who has been an outstanding addition for this team, another great trade by Don Sweeney. But nonetheless, getting back to my original point, the third line, if Hall's ready to go for the postseason, is going to be Charlie Coyle, Bertuzzi, and Hall. That line has not played together. So if Hall was ready to play right now, it would behoove the Bruins to put Felino on long-term IR and activate Taylor Hall. So that's why this report to me makes zero sense whatsoever. I truly believe that Montgomery, now he's not going to come out and say that, even if it, even if the report was true, he's not going to come out and say that the report's true because then you give a lot of ammo to the rest of the league to talk about this whole situation. But nonetheless, just getting back to my original point, wouldn't you want to see how that group looks like together? Like you don't want the first time, like Nikita Kucherov was a heart trophy winner. You're bringing him back to a loaded team where he knows how to play with these guys, right? Taylor Hall has never played with on a line. Now, he's played on a line with Coyle, of course, but he's never played on a line with Coyle and Bertuzzi. Coyle has never played on a line with Bertuzzi and Taylor Hall, right? So you would want to see that line out there together. So that's why, to me, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But the fact that we know that Taylor Hall is skating with the team, it does make me think that he is going to be back for the postseason. And whether or not the Bruins meant it this way, which I don't think they did, I think they were really worried about the injury with Taylor Hall. So they said, let's go out and let's get Bertuzzi because he gave up a first round pick for the guy. I would imagine if Taylor Hall would have been ready to play and they thought he was going to be definitely ready, like 100% he'd be ready before the postseason. I don't think they make the trade for Bertuzzi. But now, since you already gave up the first round pick, I mean, that's already gone. And Bertuzzi's been good for this team. This isn't an indictment on Bertuzzi. But I feel like now it actually could work out better in the long run that you actually get Hall back and you get Bertuzzi. So whether or not other teams and other organizations are going to criticize you of circumventing the cap, who gives a shit? Because I don't really truly believe that the Bruins meant to do it this way. It's obviously a loophole in terms of the salary cap system. 
But who gives it? Who cares right now? I mean, I really don't care, but I, I don't believe that report. I don't think that report is accurate whatsoever, but I would like to see Taylor Hall get back onto the ice by the end of the season if he can, because I want to see him play on that third line. I mean, that's a really good third line. Bertuzzi, Taylor Hall, and Coyle. I mean, that's an unbelievable third line. I give Don Sweeney a ton of credit because that's a line that he completely traded for. Traded for Coyle in 19. They make the cup. Traded for Hall a couple of years ago and traded for Bertuzzi. I mean, that's a third line that was completely traded for. And you look at the second line, of course, he traded for Pavel Zaka. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in. 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Or you can email your thoughts to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast. We'll be back with you on Sunday. We'll recap sale day on Saturday, weather permitting. We'll get into the B's. We'll get into the C's. We'll get into everything. We'll chat with you guys on Sunday.